hello, welcome to our Job to Stamp podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and iGEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestand.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. Arvind Krishnan is a young researcher in bio and genetic engineering, plant and computational biology. He devised a new system that harnesses the response of the Arabidopsis thaliana plant to bacterial endotoxins and a method of analyzing the expression of the FRK1 gene. His genetically engineered plants luminesce at different intensities based on the applied endotoxin concentration. The system is environmentally friendly and substantially cheaper than the current method. For his project, he was awarded Regeneron SDS Scholar, National GSHS Finalist, Inspo Science IRIC Bronze Medal, TKS Special Award, and at 2020 Regeneron ISAP, third award in plant sciences and second award from Serving Society Through Science. He also did a research project related to COVID-19. His team used computational molecular and protein modeling methods to analyze the binding of various ligands with key functional proteins from SARS-CoV-2. They identified six candidate molecules and even designed two novel molecules that show high efficacy in silico to be further investigated and developed into COVID-19 treatment medications. Aside from his research work, he also leads Simply Neuroscience with Shumayi Balusu, who you know was also on the Drop the Stem podcast. They are an international organization focused on interdisciplinary neuroscience and psychology education, outreach, and awareness. Within his community, Aravind leads a research program for high schoolers where he teaches microbiology and bioinformatics and guides students in conducting research. Hello, Aravind. Welcome to the podcast. I'm pumped to have you you on. Yeah, hi Blanca. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to share my experiences. I'm really interested to hear more about them. On the podcast, we also like to dig back a little bit of back in time and just touch on the beginning phases of your research journey. So what spurred you to investigate the wonders of our world? Yeah, so my research journey started at the end of my eighth grade year when I took a class trip to the Jersey Shore. Um, so New Jersey is famous for its coastline. And on that class trip, I learned about the problem of excessive horseshoe crab harvesting. So horseshoe crabs are a keystone species on this Atlantic coastline ecosystem um, in the U.S. on the eastern coastline. And they are excessively harvested by the biomedical industry for the use of their blood in endotoxin testing. Um, So endotoxins are the toxins produced by bacteria like E. coli that cause human sickness. And the biomedical companies need to test products like vaccines um, and other medical devices. Uh, for the presence of endotoxin contamination prior to being shipped out to patients. 
Um, and right now, the system that they use is uh, they extract the blood from these horseshoe crabs and use that as a means to detect the presence of endotoxin on these devices. So I wanted to develop an alternative that was more environmentally friendly and more cost effective. So the, right now, the current system, these horseshoe crabs blood costs $60,000 per gallon, which is extremely expensive. And is part of the reason why pharmaceutical products are so expensive in the US and the rest of the countries. So I wanted to devise a new system. I looked into various other types of um, systems in various organisms that could possibly detect uh, bacteria and detect endotoxin. And I came upon this uh, common laboratory organism called Arabidopsis thaliana. Um, Arabidopsis thaliana is part of the brassica family of plants, and it's a common model organism that's very cheap to grow um, and very um, cost-effective and various other advantages. So I harnessed genetic engineering to make the Arabidopsis thaliana luminous based on the amount of endotoxin applied to it. Uh, I've tested the system over several years throughout high school, and um, ultimately, it's a very promising method to be used as a system to replace uh, the current method of endotoxin testing. And I'm really excited um, as to where my research has gone over the past few years. It for sure sounds exciting, and it's also very complex. You're targeting multiple issues. You've mentioned bacterial endotoxin contamination. So if I understood it correctly, it can affect drinking water, pharmaceutical products, but you've also touched on environmental damage. What does that part of your research entail? Yeah, so the harvesting of horseshoe crabs by these biomedical companies causes severe environmental damage because um, horseshoe crabs are a keystone species, which means that they're a key component of the food web on these Atlantic coastline ecosystems. And excessively harvesting them obviously decimates their population. And by decimating their population, you're, they're also indirectly affecting other organisms' populations, like migratory shorebirds that feed on the horseshoe crab's eggs and other uh, types of um, organisms on the ecosystem. It's also damaging the economic activity of fishermen and other people who use this coastline um, as a means of economic production. Um, so that's the uh, environmental component of my project. I wanted to stop the environmental damage caused by the current practice of horseshoe crab harvesting. Um, so I like the fact that my project solves multiple issues with one solution, which has been incredibly gratifying. Absolutely. I can believe that it's an incredibly noble goal. And also the fact that you've uh, worked on the genetical background of the project as well, um, specifically on the FRK1 gene. And now you could actually measure its activity based on its luminescence. So that was the visual representation or detection of the endotoxins quantitatively. Um, how did you achieve that in your lab environment? This approach um, of genetic engineering, I came to this approach after testing various other approaches. Uh, my first approach of this project was to detect the presence of secondary metabolites like calcium ions produced after the endotoxin binds to cell membrane receptors on the Arabidopsis plant cells. Um, after testing this original method, however, it was very inconclusive because uh, the one disadvantage with that method is that these metabolites are produced by various other processes in the plant, not just endotoxin binding to the receptors. So I wanted to use a different method. So then I came upon this method of genetic engineering. Uh, so the way that I devised this method is um, by harnessing the promoter of this FRK1 gene and seeing how we can detect the, uh, expo the expression of this FRK1 gene. Because of course, this FRK1 gene is uh, responsible for the immune response of Arabidopsis to endotoxins and to bacteria. So I wanted to see if there's a method that we can um, quantitatively and easily detect the expression of this gene. So what we did was we um, used uh, genetic engineering. So we used a restriction enzyme to cut the one end of the FRK1 promoter and one end of a gene called luciferase that produces an enzyme that produces light. Um, so using a restriction enzyme, you can cut these two um, genes um, and the ends of these genes, and then you can use an enzyme called ligase to put them together. 
So then uh, we created a construct um, with the FRK1 promoter and the luciferase gene. So whenever the FRK1 would normally be expressed in my genetically engineered plants, instead there's this enzyme called luciferase that's expressed. And when you add a substrate called luciferin, that reaction produces light. So ultimately you can uh, detect the intensity of light, which indicates the intensity of FRK1 expression, which ultimately indicates the concentration of endotoxin in the sample applied to it. So it's a very, um, I think it's a very novel and innovative solution. And I think I'm glad that all the things that I learned about biology and everything else while developing this system. It puts you in a higher energy state, doesn't it? You've mentioned that you want to continue working on this project. Uh, what are the future visions involved in developing this research, amping it up, or maybe focusing on a new part of the research? What are your future plans with it? Yeah, I definitely plan to continue this research um, in the future. Um, so the current system that I've developed, the sensitivity of this system goes down to 18 endotoxin units per milliliter, which is fairly sensitive and comparable to some current systems using the horseshoe crab's blood. Um, but however, I would like to improve sensitivity even further so I can detect even lower levels of endotoxin contamination on these pharmaceutical devices, drinking water, and other um, applications. Um, so how I plan to do so is I plan to constitutively express the luciferin um, gene this, for the luciferin substrate so that you don't need to apply the luciferin substrate every time you want to test for endotoxin contamination. I also plan to um, overexpress the uh, receptor for endotoxins on the Arabidopsis cell membrane. This receptor protein is called LOR, and right now there's uh, obviously a few um, membrane receptors for endotoxin on the Arabidopsis cell membrane. But by upregulating the expression of this LOR uh, membrane uh, protein, I hope to um, increase the sensitivity of my Arabidopsis plants to endotoxin in a sample. And theoretically, if uh, all those experiments go well, I hope that I can increase the sensitivity of my system so that I can detect even lower levels of endotoxin contamination in any sample. That sounds pretty cool. So you want to overexpress the receptors so that you have a higher amount of them on the cell membrane, and then you can achieve higher numbers of accuracy. Yeah, that's the plan. And after I do that, I hope to conduct field testing of this assay. So using actual pharmaceutical samples, actual drinking water, and see if my system performs in the field as well as the um, current system and compare them, the, compare the two of them and hopefully ultimately patent this system and um, introduce it into the market to be actually used on these samples and in these various applications. Yes, since it um, affects various fields of research and also our daily lives, just thinking about water contamination and all the other environmental aspects or damages you mentioned. So I think it's a very noteworthy job that you are continually developing and, and continue to work on. Yeah, definitely. And I think one additional um, advantage that um, I see with my system and hopefully hope to implement it is uh, essentially this is a genetically engineered plant. So anyone who wishes to do endotoxin testing can uh, grow it, uh, whatever they are theoretically. So instead of manufacturing kits and sending them out from factories and sending that to various countries, um, theoretically, I hope that people can grow their own endotoxin testing kits, essentially. Um, and recently, um, MIT researchers created a plant that can detect arsenic levels in groundwater and in soil. Um, so it was interesting to see that um, how other researchers are doing it. And I hope to emulate that path of allowing people to essentially grow their own water testing and pharmaceutical testing kits, which is much more accessible than, you know, sending out kits and manufacturing them and things like that. Wow, that sounds real cool. So you will be actually able to grow your own genetically engineered plant within the four walls of your home, just with your kit. Um, since you mentioned genetic engineering a couple of times, um, I'm interested, like as you as a scientist who is clearly involved in this field, how do you envision the future of genetic engineering or can even touch on molecular medicine because that's also a trending topic? What do you think? 
think, uh, what will the future hold for us? Yeah, so we've truly arrived on a new frontier of biology. I think previously, scientists have considered biology to be a very observational discipline. You just observe the effect of some factor on a biological system. But now biology is moving into a more of an engineering discipline. We have these all of these molecular tools like CRISPR-Cas9, like zinc finger nucleases, like Callens, all of these uh, tools that can conduct genetic engineering um, on various systems and even create therapeutics and various other applications of these genetic um, engineering methods. And I think that it's really promising to see where biology and where the field can go with this new prospect of engineering biological systems. Now you basically have these tools that can go on the molecular level, um, make changes in DNA bases and change the way that the organism's phenotype um, occurs based on the DNA sequence. So I think it's really promising to see um, this whole prospect of genetic engineering and the prospect of molecular medicine. So um, in my future in college and beyond um, after high school, I hope to further pursue this whole field of genetic engineering, molecular medicine, and harness these novel tools to um, to harness um, things like CRISPR, Cas9, and other systems to develop things like molecular medicines, um, individualized medicine using genetic techniques and things like that. So it's definitely really promising and really exciting for me as someone interested in genetics and biology. I can imagine that. And no matter why, they are giving out uh, Nobel Prizes for CRISPR and uh, gene editing discoveries. Um, and I could also sense that there is an increased amount of creativity involved in the process, you know, way more about it than I do. So enlighten me and the listeners as well. Uh, what was it like working with restriction enzymes and ligases? Is it you know, different compared to regular laboratory work when in the field of biology? Yeah, it's definitely more intricate. And it's interesting to think of biology as this engineering discipline, as I mentioned before. Uh, you're basically using molecular level tools to make changes in organisms, which is incredibly empowering, I think, and incredibly interesting and intriguing. Um, it definitely requires a lot of precision in the laboratory. I learned a lot of things while doing this research project much more than I have um, even like attending lectures in school and attending classes. And it's been uh, really amazing um, stretching my boundaries in biology and working with these novel methods like restriction enzymes, like genetic engineering in the lab. So. Uh, it was definitely really enlightening to do so, working with fellow researchers, uh, fellow collaborators while doing this project um, and learning from them and developing my own independent research project based on this method. So it was definitely really empowering and really interesting to me. It, it must have been a very uh, thrilling experience, not just trying out these new methods, but also absorbing knowledge from people who have already been there before you. And then you will also be able to give the knowledge you've absorbed to the ones who are just entering the lab work. You have not only been involved in genetic engineering, but you've also been a soldier in terms of the battle against COVID-19. In what ways were you involved in that vicious fight? Yeah, definitely. So while this pandemic has definitely been uh, ravaging to the whole globe, to um, millions of people around the world, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to make tangible efforts to solve this um, pandemic to create tangible solutions. Uh, so this past summer, I conducted a computational biology research project with a few other um, uh, high school researchers um, this summer. And basically we used a computational software called CSAR to model the uh, proteins in SARS-CoV-2, like the spike protein and various other proteins. And we conducted molecular modeling to develop drugs and screen drugs that are potentially um, usable for binding to these SARS-CoV-2 proteins and can potentially um, inactivate them or prevent them from entering into human cells. Um, so we ultimately succeeded in, in developing two novel drugs that showed high theoretical efficacy in, in silico um, in these computational modeling methods to be used as uh, drug therapies for COVID-19. Uh, we presented these to um, experts from academia and industry and um, 
wrote an official um, scientific paper, of course. Um, and it was really um, interesting and empowering to have this opportunity to uh, work with fellow high schoolers interested in science to uh, create a tangible solution for COVID-19 um, using my interest in biology and using my interest in um, this whole field. So uh, it was definitely uh, really empowering to do that. Um, also, I was involved, um, I am volunteer as an EMT uh, with my local rescue squad. So uh, I serve as a first responder on the front lines of this pandemic. So um, I have that more visceral and more hands-on um, um, contribution to solving the pandemic as well. So working with patients who are uh, affected with COVID-19 possibly and uh, working to solve uh, medical emergencies, uh, things like that. So definitely I've um, been thankful to contribute to solving the pandemic on multiple fronts um, using my interest of biology, uh, all of which was really empowering and really intriguing to me. Honestly, kudos to you for not only targeting the scientific level of it, but also the humane um, aspect of it, interacting with the patients. It must have been also emotionally challenging as well at some point. I believe you witnessed some um, incredibly heart-wrenching worst-case scenarios. What has been your experience like with um, talking to or treating patients with COVID? Yeah, so it's definitely been um, interesting and uh, it's a different experience than treating patients before COVID. Uh, most of the cases before COVID were not uh, too serious. Um, things, um, standard cases for an EMT, like conducting CPR or respiratory difficulties, things like that. Um, after COVID, obviously, there's various precautions that uh, we have to take as EMTs. And I think the patient uh, interaction aspect is also impaired. You can't interact as closely with the patient. You can't really converse with them as much because there's the danger of you know spreading COVID-19. Um, so I think the patient interaction aspect has definitely been changed slightly, um, and it's definitely um, a different experience um, interacting with patients and treating patients in the time of COVID-19, because you always have that um, um, thought in the back of your head, what if I get COVID-19 and what if I'm infected as well? So it definitely requires more caution, and um, there's different precautions that we have to take, but I'm glad that I still have the opportunity to solve these uh, medical emergencies and work with my fellow EMTs. Um, in, in the midst of COVID-19. You are literally the physical embodiments of EMT guardian angels. Um, even if you cannot have very close conversation with the patient, your endurance and your spirit of willingness to help definitely contributes um, to their lives and also being on top of your game. Um, I think that this pandemic has just increased awareness of the incredible sacrifice doctors, nurses, all the hospital workers make to actually contribute to the lives of patients. So heartfelt kudos to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Simply put, neuroscience is essential, especially with the ever-growing need for mental health education during the pandemic as well, not just the, the physical embodiments of the disease. So you are a co-founder of Simply Neuroscience. What do you value most about the culture, mission, and vision of this organization? Yeah, so I serve as the president and board chair of Simply Neuroscience. And basically the mission of Simply Neuroscience is to expand education, outreach, and awareness in the fields of neuroscience, psychology, and mental health. Um, so one key issue with neuroscience and psychology in that whole field right now is the education in those fields is basically restricted to the undergraduate level and above. Um, throughout elementary, middle, and high school, I've never really had an opportunity to learn neuroscience in school, um, although it's in incredibly interesting and incredibly applicable to so many fields. Um, they don't really teach neuroscience to uh, kids below the undergraduate level. So the mission of Simply Neuroscience partially is to address this gap in the education system, to provide opportunities for uh, students um, at these elementary through high school levels to explore neuroscience and have a way to enter into the field. Um, it's also to address the issue of inequity in science. So 
um, in the U.S. and many other countries, people don't have the same opportunities to um, enter into science um, based on their background and based on various other socioeconomic factors, based on their school system and other types of factors wherever they live. Um, so the mission of Simply Neuroscience partially is to democratize science, to increase the ability for people to learn science, to learn from experts. Um, this past summer, we had multiple conferences bringing together uh, over 2,000 students globally and connecting them with hundreds of uh, professors um, and other experts in the field uh, to come and learn about neuroscience. And it was really successful and um, gave an opportunity for people to enter into um, neuroscience and have a way to enter into STEM, be inspired to enter into STEM. Um, and on the mental health side of Simply Neuroscience, so we have various other initiatives that um, are special, specifically cater to dealing with mental health and helping people cope during the time of COVID-19. So that's a very underserved um, part of COVID-19. You hear on the news all these uh, medical issues, which obviously are very important, um, all these respiratory difficulties and other issues that patients face on the medical front. But even more people... Um, theoretically deal with mental health illnesses. And those mostly go undiagnosed. People suffering from um, depression because they can't interact with people that they love, uh, friends, family, they can't go outside, uh, things like that. So uh, partially um, the mission of something neuroscience is to deal with this aspect as well. So we have various outreach programs that help people cope with mental health during the pandemic, help increase their mental health. We conduct workshops, we conduct virtual lessons for people around the world to learn about these techniques. Um, and hopefully we can do our part to uh, address this very underserved issue of COVID-19 and hopefully improve the mental health of people who are suffering from difficulties with that. That sounds incredibly useful, especially in these challenging times. You've mentioned that there are some techniques, uh, some tools that you provide for the students to cope with these um, upcoming and new tasks they have to tackle. Has there been a technique or a mental strategy that you've implemented in your personal life and that has helped you grow and would advise to others to practice the same? Yeah, I think mindfulness and self-reflection is definitely really important to do. Um, especially uh, if you're very like high achieving or very ambitious um, as a student or as an adult or anyone, you're often very like go, go, go. You always want to pursue the next thing. You always want to be very ambitious. But uh, to maintain positive mental health, sometimes you need to take the time to um, slow down and think about yourself and reflect uh, not, so you can have, maintain a positive mental health while also pursuing everything that you want to. Uh, so uh, the aspect of meditation is something I definitely apply in my life uh, periodically. Um, self-reflection, mindfulness, uh, making sure that um, I take care of myself along with my other pursuits. Um, so all those techniques are um, relatively simple things, but things that most people don't think of implementing in their lives. So I would definitely recommend um, looking into something neuroscientist resources um, for anyone listening and uh, seeing all the techniques that you can use to maintain positive mental health during the time of COVID-19. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of times the best and most effective things are simple and that's where their greatness lies. And even a neuron has to have a refractory period before becoming depolarized again. So um, it's definitely important to rest and take time to reflect, just as you said. Well, if one wants to get involved to transmit your signal, how can they sign up? Do you have some new conferences coming up? What are the top listers that you want to highlight in the podcast now? Yeah, I'm really um, proud of all the growth Simply Neuroscience has had. So Simply Neuroscience started in May 2019. So we're less than uh, two years old at this point, and we already have uh, more than 360 staff members at this point in more than 100 countries, I believe. So really exponential growth um, with Simply Neuroscience. So um, I definitely highly encourage anyone listening to get involved. Uh, we have a link tree with various links, how you can apply to be a staff member. 
um, and then you can be interviewed by your HR team to join the team um, to join as a Symphony Science volunteer staff member. Um, and I think Lanka can post the information of that with this podcast. But also we have various other um, events coming up. So um, every summer we usually try to do various um, uh, educational events in neuroscience and in psychology to bring more people into the field, uh, which will be happening this summer as well. We plan to have an ideathon in which people can devise solutions for neuroscience-centered problems, um, like creating therapies for neurodegenerative diseases, um, creating solutions to solve mental health during the pandemic, um, things like that, neuroeconomics, behavioral economics, um, all those interdisciplinary fields. Uh, so we definitely plan to have our educational events, our neuroscience competitions over this uh, summer. Um, another initiative that's very interesting that we've recently started is neuroscience focus groups. Uh, so there's this um, connection between science and policy that's very um, often overlooked. And uh, the mission of these focus groups with Symphony Neuroscience is to connect that bridge between uh, science and policy. So we have seminars with uh, policymakers um, in science, like public officials, elected officials, that can come and speak about science policy. So this connection between um, education and policy, health policy, science policy, um, and all these things. So you can come and learn and attend these focus groups about uh, scientific policy. Um, and there's various other uh, very brilliant initiatives put on by our amazing Simply Neuroscience staff members. So I highly encourage you to check out our link tree and definitely join our staff team so you can become involved in expanding neuroscience education to children around the world and to students around the world. So um, definitely join something neuroscience. I highly encourage you to do so. It's definitely a very gratifying and empowering experience to be part of our team. That sounds awesome that you are highlighting the fact that science and society cannot be divorced and um, that structured environment on the policymaking level can increase the efficacy of science on a societal level by a thousandfold. So I think it's uh, rather important to join these initiatives and join these programs, um, especially focusing on not just purely vertical fields, but also horizontal ones that are, are trending right now and that I think will be um, top listers on the market, just as genetic engineering and, and biotechnology and, and all these new upcoming fields. Do you agree that the landscape or the landscape of these uh, upcoming jobs will be definitely altered in the upcoming years? Yeah, the landscape of science is definitely changing. I think I think in the past decades, people have had this uh, stereotype of science of being um, like certain people just working in tall towers and doing scientific ex experiments um, by themselves, like alone without any collaboration. Um, now, science is definitely changing. Whether that stereotype was true or not, now the stereotype is um, definitely changing. I think pe people are um, seeing how science can be connected with so many fields, with policy, as uh, we mentioned, with education, with um, healthcare and various other fields, especially with the prospect of things we talked about, like biotechnology with genetic engineering. There's so many opportunities to enter into science. So the job prospects in science are definitely exponentially increasing. And uh, whatever um, you, may, you may be interested in, there's definitely a place in STEM and definitely a place in science for you. Um, so there's definitely a way that you can contribute to the advancement of science um, and along with the advancement of society through science. The old trick was keeping the idea to yourself and just as you said, working in an isolated environment, not really collaborating and a lot of times protecting those discoveries. And of course, it has a historical background because there was a lack of patents and um, even codes of conduct. But I think it's noteworthy that you're building a community and sharing the knowledge with others. And they're also uh, motivated to do the same in their lives because that's really the, the real measurement of, of impact of how they're going to implement it. And 
Uh, along the same lines, you also lead a research program for high school students. How do you help them grow and flourish in the STEM field? Yeah, so I lead this research program and it was motivated to enter into science mentorship because I know the difficulties of entering to research myself. Um, I started pursuing scientific research at the end of eighth grade, as I mentioned, which is uh, fairly young to start pursuing scientific research. And um, at the time, although my um, idea may have had merit, I was not really taken seriously by anyone who I presented this idea to. I contacted hundreds of professors and met with dozens of professors to present my ideas to see if anyone could mentor me, I could do my work in their lab. And uh, the vast majority of people um, either did not believe and did not have confidence in my idea or was not willing to mentor a young student in their lab. So I wanted to um, develop this uh, research program and lead this research program so that I can provide an uh, opportunity for students to enter into scientific research because it's very difficult to do so as a young student, as a high school student. Uh, so in this program, I uh, lead people through a research project uh, in which we sequence and analyze the genome of Landolte punctata, which is a duckweed. Um, and the goal of this project is to build a full genome, a full genomic sequence of, of duckweed uh, for its applications in things like biofuels, in environmental remediation, in agriculture. Um, so how this program works is at the beginning of the year, I teach them fundamental lessons in biology, like the central dogma of biology, um, gene expression, things like that. Um, and then we have a, a software called the DNA Sequence Analysis Program, in which they can analyze the sequence of Landolte punctata of these duckweed um, and conduct computational analysis of it, uh, conduct um, so the sequence analysis of the DNA sequence compared to other organisms DNA sequence via a tool called BLAST hosted by the NCBI, a National Center for Biotechnology Information, um, and conducts various other computational experiments on the sequence. We also have them do a laboratory component. So actually um, extracting these um, cDNA libraries from bacteria, um, cloning them via bacterial cloning and via PCR, um, and actually conducting sequencing on them, Sanger sequencing to sequence the um, genomes of these duckweeds. Um, and at the end of the year, um, I have my students uh, publish their work on the National Center for Biotechnology Information Database. So by the end of the program, um, all of these students have um, their research actually published, which is uh, quite uh, unique for a high school student to be able to do that. Um, and we have hundreds of students uh, involved in the program every year, over 100. Uh, so it's been really gratifying to expand um, access to science and democratize science uh, so that I can provide this research experience for students and make them interested in science and, you know, break down the stereotypes of science being very boring and very monotone and very being very um, not interesting and giving them this opportunity to be scientific researchers themselves and hopefully enter into the field um, in their careers and in their education in the future. You truly are giving them such a thorough, whole and dynamic experience with these higher tech experiments and the knowledge you provide. And just to say, like publishing the research is incredible. Just as one of my friends said, you officially become a scientist on paper when you publish something. So getting that DOI number is, is definitely a worthwhile experience. And um, I just really like the structure and also the inspirational um, and, and uh, technical knowledge that you provide to those students. Yeah, definitely. It's really important to expand access to science. Um, as I mentioned before, it's very um, closed off right now, science. Uh, it's not really democratized. It's not really that equitable. And we need to expand opportunities for people to get involved in science, which I really commend Drop the Stem for doing that, Ascent Science, and various other programs. So 
it's really important that we all make an effort to expand the number of people that can go into science. Thank you, definitely. And that's where science policy making comes into place because we have these motivations in our hearts. We have so many dreams, but there has to be some type of groundwork or uh, a structural components or elements that you put into so that you can actually make those dreams of helping others come true. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to reverse it a little bit. Have there been moments when you learned something new from your mentees, some highlight moments from working with the students? Yeah, so I think my students have taught me the the ability, the sense of curiosity that young students have about science. I'm really inspired by the eagerness of them to learn science and to expand their boundaries, to go beyond their comfort zones and to learn these uh, complicated biological techniques and these complicated scientific research techniques um, to contribute to this research project. So I'm really inspired by the curiosity that they bring to this research program and the sense of wonder that they have when they first join this program and when they're going through the program. Um, so I'm really um, ins- inspired by them, uh, really empowered by them, um, and really more motivated by hearing what they have to say and hearing that um, now they are more interested in science, they're performing better in science in school and all these benefits that they have from the program. Um, so I'm definitely uh, really inspired uh, by them, by their curiosity, by their wonder. And it's been really uh, amazing to be able to teach these um, amazing and wonderful students in this program. Curiosity is such an essential component. And also the fact that you provide them these wider perspectives and how can they view science. Fish grow to the size of their balls. And um, sometimes we just need a bigger tank, like a wider perspective for our lives to realize our ambitions or just test out some some new experiments or see what really tugs at our heartstrings. And I think you provide that bigger tank for the students been in science you've been involved in the field for many years but if we date back a little bit what would you advise your younger self getting into research some type of mindset or strategies to implement or well for example some mistakes to avoid what would you say to a younger Arabind? yeah one thing i would say to my younger self would definitely be to be uh, more open-minded uh not very closed off in the path i want to take um, so, uh, for example, my research project with developing a novel endotoxin assay, uh, it took a very organic path in its development. I didn't, I didn't initially in, uh, envision myself doing genetic engineering and doing all these novel techniques to develop this assay. I was very um, intent on, you know, going about that initial approach of detecting secondary metabolites. Um, and I think it's uh, really important to be open-minded, especially in science. Uh, you can't allow yourself to be constrained by your own preconceived notions. Um, and I would definitely advise my younger self to be uh, more open-minded, to be more willing to take the less the less taken path, so uh, uh, something like that. And I think um, definitely another thing that I would advise my younger self to um, do is to be very per- uh, perseverant in science. Um, there's often times in the lab where I was almost um, ready to give up, you know, uh, two weeks, three weeks at a time where none of my experiments were working, um, none of the data that I had was conclusive. And I think I, I'm glad that I stuck, stuck through it and ultimately was able to um, develop my conclusions and develop my assay. But uh, I would definitely advise my younger self to be perseverant at all times, to always stick through it until the end. Um, because there's this quote that people are, don't fail uh, when they're defeated, they fail when they quit. Um, so um, I would definitely advise my younger self to always stick through it and definitely never quit, always work work through any difficulties and work over any obstacles that I have. Dropping the mic here with those inspirational words. I think you are speaking to a lot of listeners right now because 
large percentage of listeners are also conducting research and I receive a lot of messages how the words of young scientists help them spur on their own research journey as well and sometimes it's inevitable that we're gonna face roadblocks and we might feel stuck well during my experience as a scientist I've noticed there are two types of people the one who has to just break free from research for a while you know take a walk or just don't think about it and then another solution will pop in their mind and the type B person is the one who just sits right there and doesn't stop thinking about it. What type are you? How do you approach these kind of problems? I think I'm a combination of those two types. I definitely appreciate the uh, sense of inspiration I get from taking a break and like going on a walk, things like that. I also um, am the other type of person that uh, sits through and works through problems. I don't think any um, person is any one of one or the other. I think every one of us is a combination of the two. And I think both approaches are fine as long as uh, you stick through it and always work through obstacles rather than giving up. I think both approaches are definitely valid and both approaches are definitely something that people should try if they're going through difficulties in science. I think that um, as long as people work through their obstacles and never give up, that's the best thing that they can do um, as a scientist and to pursue science. That is true. It's like the rule of Hessian chemistry. It doesn't matter how you got to your end product. What matters is that you actually got the end result. Yeah, so. Yes, if you, if you zoom out the picture, it was the, the hole that you see, not necessarily the minute details. So I, I definitely agree with you. And on the podcast, we also have the if question part. So we can expand on the timeline a bit and also the societal impact one can have. So now you're not only a scientist, a communicator and a founder of an organization, but now you're also going to be a czar of legal legislation. So if you were that omnipotent ruler, what would you change about our society and why? Yeah. So one area of policy that I'm really interested in as someone interested in biology and in the medical field is healthcare policy. Um, so if I have the power to um, change any piece of legislation in the U.S., it would be to expand access to healthcare for people in underserved communities, uh, to expand equity in the field, accessibility, and affordability. Uh, the quality of healthcare in the U.S. is really good. I commend all the medical innovations that come out of U.S.'s research labs of our medical institutions. But the sad fact of the matter is that the U.S. is not really that equitable in, in terms of our healthcare system. Um, your the, the zip code where you live, for instance, can determine whether you live or die from an illness and determine your life expectancy even. And that's really unacceptable. Um, I'm really in favor of the single-payer healthcare system that some politicians have been um, advising and been uh, advocating for. Um, so I really hope that uh, if I was a star of legal legislation, that I could implement this type of single-payer healthcare system to make healthcare at the point of access free for anyone that needs it, um, and that um, we can pay for healthcare uh, through government sources so that we can democratize healthcare, make it easier for people to access healthcare and things like expanding preventative health clinics. So as an EMT, one thing I've seen with many patients is that because they can't afford it, they just don't go to preventative healthcare checkups. And the 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 sad fact about this is over time, their disease can worsen and worsen. Ultimately, they have to call uh, an emergency service like an EMT to come and bring them to the hospital. Um, so with a single-payer healthcare system, with making healthcare cheaper, uh, we can encourage people to go to these preventative healthcare checkups to maintain a positive health and well-being. And I think that I would definitely um, aim to implement that single-payer healthcare system that many countries in Europe and elsewhere have. Um, and I hope that if I go into uh, policymaking in the future or some capacity like that or public health or things like that, I would definitely hope to implement that type of single-payer healthcare system to democratize healthcare and to make it 
more affordable and more equitable for people across this country. If, if you're going to be running for some type of role, I will definitely vote for you. Um, because it's like when it's about some type of technological advancement, the early detection, you have to focus on the prevention just as you expand it on, because that could also save many lives and also many costs from an economical perspective. And also the fact that it's quite saddening that we have terms like third, wor third world, because we all belong to one world, but due to differences by many factors, whether in economical or societal, we, we use that term and the largest part of humanity is suffering. So I think it's um, very great that you want to focus on that and bring that alleviative care to, to many who are suffering. And the second one is if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you invite your dinner party and why? Uh, yeah, that's a very difficult question. Uh, one scientist that I'm really uh, inspired by is Jennifer Doudna, who um, was one of the main inventors of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Uh, being someone really interested in genetic engineering myself, um, I think there's so much to talk about with Dr. Doudna. Um, and her whole innovation of CRISPR-Cas9, because it's not only the scientific side, it's also the ethical side. Uh, like what um, applications are appropriate to use for CRISPR-Cas9? Um, is it appropriate to use it to genetically engineer like designer babies and things like that? Or is it only appropriate to solve human disease? Um, I think there's so many applications of CRISPR that I would like to talk about with Dr. Doudna. And I think it's really inspirational and really amazing how she uh, invented CRISPR uh, along with her collaborators and um, developed the system in such a short time when you think about it. And that has really opened the prospect of genetic engineering for uh, biology and to solve so many things like human disease and various other applications. So I would love to have dinner and have a talk with Jennifer Doudna, with Dr. Doudna, and to see her opinions on CRISPR-Cas9, how she sees, uh, how she envisions the tool being used in the future, and maybe get some inspiration how, as to how I can maybe use CRISPR-Cas9 to develop novel innovations in the future as well. How awesome would it be that to have Jennifer Dona as co-author on your next scientific paper born out of that um, dinner party. But yes, it's, it's definitely very intriguing because CRISPR has been thrown around a lot and we've had CRISPR since 2012, if I remember correctly, but now they already won a Nobel Prize, but there is another side to it. Um, we have to find strategies how to prevent the worst case scenarios and, and tackle the ethical implications. You've mentioned designer babies. Do you see any other area where it might be a, a bit of a gray area zone and that you think uh, would deserve more attention? Yeah, so along with the ethical considerations of designer babies, I think there's various other um, reason, uh, various other uh, regions of where the uh, efficacy and applicability of CRISPR is more of a debatable area. Um, I think one other um, issue with CRISPR, one other uh, area of issue is with genetically engineered crops with agriculture. Uh, so there's many people f for any reason that are afraid of you know, consuming uh, GMO crops, which is not really a logical concern but definitely something uh, that requires ethical consideration um, with that. Um, another way that people are thinking of in, in implementing CRISPR in the future is to engineer um, animals and engineer crops that can glow, grow on other planets like Mars if humans settle there in the next few decades. Um, so there's definitely ethical considerations. Should we um, engineer Earth-bound organisms to survive on other planets? Is that appropriate? Uh, will that damage uh, the other planet's ecosystem? Things like that. Um, so there's various other uh, ethical considerations, various other areas in which CRISPR needs to be considered in an ethical standpoint. But I think that it's definitely really promising. And I think that 
uh, as long as uh, ethicists, as policymakers, as scientists, they all work together um, to solve these problems and come to common solutions. I think the future of CRISPR and genetic engineering is really promising. It's a double-edged sword, like it can increase fertility or backfire agriculture, create ecological benefits or imbalance. But as you said, if we take those steps and consult with experts and really transmit the knowledge we can know about GMO crops or any type of new advances to the public in a clear and concise manner, hopefully it will not go down on the wrong path. And then now we're going to play a little bit of a game called the This or That Game. So... Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. First, I'm coming in with a big debate, chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Mm, I would go with chocolate. I think uh, I'm a fan of chocolate. Um, so yeah, chocolate. All types, dark, milk, white, whatever. <laughs> um, I'm a fan of dark chocolate. Uh, I think it's really tasty. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It's definitely more rich in flavor and also have a higher content of trace minerals. So definitely gets a vote. And the second one is violin or guitar. Definitely violin. I actually play violin. Um, I've been playing violin for um, over 10 years now and I play in the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra and I even mentor kids in violin in inner city uh, areas like Newark, New Jersey. Um, so that would be a strong favor for violin for me, being a violinist myself. Um, so yeah, definitely violin. Very impressive. Do you have a favorite piece to play? Yeah, I like uh, Paganini's Caprice 24. Um, it's a common song. If any audience members have um, don't know it, if you listen to it, I can almost guarantee that you would recognize it. It's a really um, interesting and fast-paced song. Um, if they don't know it, I think they will definitely give it a listen after a conversation. Third one is printed book or ebook. I would say ebook. I think it's more environmentally friendly and it's also more accessible. You can bring it wherever you want. You can just bring one tablet wherever you are and you can access millions of books. So definitely ebook. Yes, and you can write in that book without actually damaging the paper and rewrite it whenever you can. Yeah. And the fourth one is mountain or beach? Um, I would say mountain. I am a general fan of uh, cold climates in general. Um, and I like rock climbing as an amateur. So um, definitely mountain. Oh, that's great. Do you live in an area where you can access mountains quickly and, and go for a hike? Yeah, so I live in New Jersey um, and in a more uh, kind of rural area of New Jersey. So we have a few mountains. Um, I like to go hiking on them. Um, I'm a Boy Scout, so I like camping a lot. I like the wilderness. I like exploring the wilderness, which is part of where I got my love of biology from. So um, yeah, I think I love exploring that wilderness and mountains and things like that. That is so cool. We have Boy Scouts in Europe, but I think it's not so prevalent um, as in the U.S. Do you have to identify plant species like using Latin taxonomy or, or what does it involve? I, I think it has a very strong community sense as well. But what about the biological part? Yeah, so in that part, uh, so we basically have to learn to live on in the wilderness by ourselves, like without any much implements or without even um, much adults around. So um, things like, you know, identifying um uh, fish, for example, that you can uh, harvest uh, from like water bodies to eat, for example, or like knowing which plants are safe to eat um, in the forest, not eating poisonous plants, not eating like poisonous fungi that are growing, um, things like that. So um, it's been really interesting to explore biology on that front and, you know, like be very hands-on, um, explore biology, like by being in the wilderness myself. I can imagine that having a few Bear grills moments yeah. <laughs> thrown in the mix. The last one is spicy or sweet. Um, I would have to go with spicy. Um, so um, uh, I think I'm Indian. So various other uh, my most of my family makes various spicy dishes, and I tend to like them. So 
um, I would definitely go with spicy. Do you have a top list or favorite that's your go-to spicy Indian dish? Um, I wouldn't really have a favorite. Um, I think um, one uh, very common dish my family makes is um, idli and sambar, which is um, nice to eat. Uh, it's a spicy dish and yeah, I like it. Sounds really good. Okay, we've got the this or that game questions covered. And now the last one comes up that just encapsulates all the things we've been talking about during the podcast. And that is, what does science mean to you? Yeah, so science means to me the ability to make a tangible contribution and tangible solutions to address problems that we see in the world around us. Um, like my entry into science happened to be to solve this problem of environmental damage, of excessive cost of pharmaceutical devices, and of excessive patients' deaths from endotoxin contamination. So I think the real power of science is to use science as a means to solve the problems that we see in the world around us. It's really empowering to be able to have this whole field that's dedicated to um, investigating the problems that we see around us, investigating distant things like galaxies uh, light years away, or even the microscopic uh, biological creatures that we see in the world around us. Science is really empowering and really uh, amazing to be used as a medium, as a tool to solve problems in the world around us. And I'm really glad that science has developed so much with new prospects like genetic engineering that we discussed and other new prospects that can truly be used as a means to um, harness our knowledge, combine our knowledge, and solve problems in an interdisciplinary way. Um, so it's really promising to see science as a medium to solve problems in the world around us and to investigate more about the world around us. And I'm really glad that um, I hope to go into science and continue solving problems that I see in the world around me. Yes, there's so much to know. And um, I just want to thank you for you know increasing knowledge about genetic engineering. That is such a trending topic and it's going to be so useful, even more so in the upcoming decades, but also mental health awareness, public policies, and also getting to know you as a person beyond the project board. Um, I think that the listeners can take a lot of wisdom from this conversation. So Thank you for coming on and inspiring many. Yeah, thank you so much for having me under up the stem. It was really um, nice being on here. I really commend your mission of uh, democratizing science as I'm trying to do as well. Um, so I hope anyone listening, you can possibly join something in your science, get involved in science yourself, and definitely uh, reach out to me if you have need any advice or need any um, mentorship going into science yourselves. Thank you so much. And of course, um, I will link all the goodies to neuroscience um, and to Simply Neuroscience and any essential links that can direct them in a direction towards the STEM fields. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and more. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.